is your word written? The only infallible rule of faith and practice. That you so superintended the writing by the human authors that what we have is rightly called the word of the living God. And I pray, Lord, that the spirit that inspired it will now illuminate it to our understanding. That it will be in our midst living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword. That it will be a hammer conforming us to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, that you would use a wretchedly sinful crooked stick to show the narrow way of the Lord Jesus. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the title of my message is What Went Wrong in Corinth, and frankly, a lot of things went wrong in Corinth, but I'm talking, obviously, about the Lord's Supper and their celebration of it. So I want to direct your attention to 1 Corinthians 11 at verse 17. 1 Corinthians 11 at verse 17, and I'll read consecutively through verse 34, which is the end of this chapter. Hear now the word of God at 1 Corinthians 11, verse 17. Now in giving these instructions, I do not praise you, since you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For first of all, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and in part I believe it. For there must also be factions among you that those who are approved may be recognized among you. Therefore, when you come together in one place, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of others. And one is hungry and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat in? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do, as often as you eat it, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment on himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, And many sleep, for if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord, that we may not be condemned with the world. Therefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. But if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, 
lest you come together for judgment, and the rest I will set in order when I come. Amen. The grass withers and the flowers will fade away, but this is God's word. It will not fade away. Every jot and tittle will be accomplished. One of the very sad, and I might add discouraging, realities about us as humans, fallen humans, is that we can contradict ourselves both in blatant ways and in subtle ways. We can preach or teach purity and practice impurity. Too many ministers have done that. I heard of another in our denomination just two or three days ago. We can exhort people unlovingly and unkindly to be loving and kind. Sadly, I've done that. We can exalt frugality and stewardship in regard to one thing and yet spend profligately in regard to others. Churches can put out welcome signs and then be unwelcoming. That's one of the sad realities of who we are, these contradictions. And I think the best way to see this passage in Corinth, this is 1 Corinthians, is that the church was contradicting itself in its practice of the Lord's Supper. And you might say, how so? Well, the sacrament of the Lord's Supper is in part designed to illustrate openly and visibly the unity of the church. In 1 Corinthians 10, the chapter before this one, it says, because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. We all eat of the same bread. We all believe in the same Christ. The church is many. There are many parts, as in a physical body, but there's one body. We all partake of one bread. We're all saved in the same way, by the same grace of the same Jesus Christ. We're all united to Jesus Christ by faith and individually members one of another, to use Paul's phrase in Romans 12. However, given that it's supposed to demonstrate unity, supposed to show forth visibly the unity of the church, their practice, the manner in which they were celebrating the sacrament, contradicted the visibility, the visibly, what was visibly to be expressed in the sacrament, the unity for which Jesus came and prayed and died. He prayed for that unity in John 17. I do not, do not ask for these only, but also for those who be, will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved me, them even as you loved me. So Jesus is praying that the visible unity of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ will be, as it were, an apologetic saying to the world, and he uses the world, proving to the world that Jesus is the Christ. 
and that he's come in the flesh, that they may know and be one. And certainly this church, as we will see, is not doing that. We need to ask ourselves if we contradict ourselves when we come to the Lord's table. Do I do what they were doing? Do we demonstrate the unity that is expressed in the sacrament and for which Jesus prayed? And I want to explore that this morning. Now, I've got two points. They've got some links, so don't get your hopes up. But uh, first, the, the practice of the church at Corinth. The practice of the church at Corinth. And I want to look at the practice by first saying that the picture that is presented here in the text is very ugly. Very ugly. They are coming together as a church of the Lord Jesus Christ, probably on the Lord's Day, to, to have a feast, a, a, a meal. Uh, sometimes these things are called love feasts. Uh, the, the words eat and eating are used in verse 21 and 34 and other places and implied throughout. And verse 18 says they're coming together as a church. When you come together as a church, and, and that was a common thing. That's what they're doing. And then he says the problem, the problem, if you look in verse 21, each one takes his own supper ahead of the others. One is hungry and another is drunk. Each one, in another translation, goes ahead with his own meal. Some lack essentials. Some are hungry. We assume those are the poor. Others eat and drink excessively. Another gets drunk. We assume that's the rich. In verse 33, it says you're not waiting for one another. A plan, apparently, there's no plan. There's no schedule. There's no regard for others. Like my mother and perhaps your mother, they said, now wait for everybody to begin. Wait till everybody serve before you start. They didn't follow that. Uh, bad table manners, we might say. Uh, imagine it this way. Uh, last Sunday, uh, after the worship service uh, and after a coffee and refreshment time, we had a meal here. Uh, and I think that's a monthly practice. So what they were doing is like this. So people bring what they can bring. And so one person brings a, a, a beef tenderloin and slices it up. And another person brings spam and slices it up. And, and the person with the beef tenderloin says, we'll eat that, thank you. And you'll have to eat that. And you drink water and I've got a nice Pinot Noir from the Willamette Valley. And so people bring their own food and they say, you're not having my food. I'll eat my food. You eat your food. You say, were they really doing that? That's what they were doing. You say, that's not good. No, that's what Paul's trying to tell them too. And he's going to further tell them it's not gospel, as we will see. So the picture that's presented is ugly. The evaluation that's made is strongly negative. Verse 17, it's not for the better, but for the worse. This is worse. This is not a good thing. It's not a neutral thing. It's a bad thing. No celebration of the sacrament would be better than what you guys are doing there at Corinth. That's very strong. That's very serious, as we will see. He says in verse 20, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. And they might have said, well, what do you mean? 
We're practicing the Lord's Supper. And he says, no, you're not. What you're doing is not Jesus' design. It's not Jesus' intention. You're not doing a mutation, but a mutilation of what Jesus intended. It is so grotesque that the real item is not on display at all. He says in verse 22, you despise the church of God. You despise those who have not enough. To despise is to treat with contempt, to look down on, to think nothing of. It's not necessarily, get this, it's not necessarily that they would say that, but their actions convey that. They are despising their poorer brothers and sisters in Christ by the way they are celebrating this sacrament, by the way they're eating the meal. Perhaps we could say that they're behaving in the church fellowship the way the world relates outside the church. And that's a no-no for them and for us. Verse 22, he says, you humiliate those who have nothing. To humiliate is to shame or disgrace. And so the stakes are very high. He says in verse 29, some are eating and drinking judgment on themselves. In verse 30, he says, many are weak or ill or some have died. Now, don't get me wrong. The problem is not in the sacrament. We, I think, in the Presbyterian Reformed tradition, are sometimes a little off, and we think that the sacrament is kind of mysteriously toxic, and if I eat it in the wrong way, it'll kill me. I think the problem, it needs to be said, is not in the sacrament, but it's in their hearts. The problem is in their practice. They're sinful, as we will see, I think, in a very ordinary way. Now, how do we apply this thus far? One of the things that I repeatedly told the elders in the church in Alabama I pastored, and I tell others when I uh, am before them, is that God is rightfully out for his own glory in his church. There are a lot of things you cannot be sure of uh, about the future and about the present even, but you can be sure that God is out for his own glory uh, in the church especially, but I believe also in his world. And, and God is glorified in his church when people who are significantly different come to Christ and to one another. When people who are naturally different by race and gender and education and society and economics and other ways, people that the world does not know how people that are that different can get along with one another, much less love one another. But the church knows how people that are different can get along. How a Gentile like me and a Dutchman like some of you can get along. And how a, how a black and a white and an Asian can get along. How a man and a woman and slave and free can get along. Because we know Christ. We know Christ. God loves us even though we're different from one another. And here's the deal. So you figure out in your mind now, who is it, what group is it that you just don't like? And one of the reasons you don't like them is there's a gap between you and them. I'm here, they're there. I'm like this, they're like that, okay? 
And, and we just find it difficult to love people that are different from us. I get it. I struggle with it too. I know. What's the, how big is that gap? Okay. How big is the gap between God and me? <laughs> See, there's the, that's where the gospel tells me I have no ground to stand on, right? Because the gap between God, is me is, is, between God and me is infinitely greater than the gap between me and anybody in this list I just read. Race, gender, education, society, economics, whatever. And we're called to love one another as he loves us in spite of the fact that we're so different. And God is glorified and the world looks at that and says, how do these people get along? Why do they love one another? I mean, the early church used to have people say to them, my, how they love one another. Apparently, there are some practices, even among professing Christians, which reflect so badly on God's glory, that obscure his glory so much, that he will discipline or remove the people so involved rather than allow the sinful practice to continue in his church. And that's what was happening in Corinth. Some were weak and sick and some had died. And that's, that's, that's what's before us right here, right now, today. So that's the practice of the church. Now, there are a couple of critical questions that flow from their practice that I want to address in my second point, critical questions flowing from their practice. Here's the first one. What does it mean to discern the body, to discern the body in verse 29? Now, your Bible, the, the, uh, the um, New King James and the New International Version, both in verse 29 say he, he who, something like, he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. But in the New King James, it's under the word, by the word Lord, it's got a note that says, well, the word Lord is not in the earliest and the best manuscripts. And so the ESV and some other translations have uh, 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 omitted the word. And so the question is, what is it that we are to discern? What is it to discern the body? Now, one possibility, the, what I would call the uh, traditional interpretation, uh, and, and this is true in, 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 I think, the Continental Reform tradition and, and the British and Scottish uh, reformed tradition as well, is to take this as seeing Jesus' body symbolically represented in the elements of the sacrament. Um, without recognizing the body, without evaluating or judging and seeing uh, that this represents the body and blood of the Lord. Now that is obviously true. Uh, I take nothing away from that. It fits well with verse 27 where of the Lord is included. This interpretation uses the partial phrase in verse 29, discern the body, for the whole. The problem I have with that interpretation is I don't think it fits the context very well. It's difficult to believe that the church at Corinth did not know that what the elements represented. Perhaps they did not, but it seems to me quite unlikely that they did not. It's so very elementary. On other occasions, Paul mentioned body and blood in verses 26 and 27 and 28. But in verse 29, the Greek text has just body. And so does he mean what he meant in the other verses or something slightly different? And I think it's impossible to answer that question grammatically. And we must rely on the context. And because of the context, it seems more likely 
that in this context, discerning the church as the body of Christ, um, as my fellow brothers and sisters, as my fellow partakers, redeemed alike by the body and blood of Christ, that you need to recognize and discern that the church is called the body of Christ as well. What would that mean? That would mean we would see ourselves as equals before God. We would see that in Christ there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, neither male nor female, for we are all one in Jesus Christ in Galatians 3, verse 28. It fits so well with the context, and I believe it's exegetically permissible. What does that mean for us? That because we share in Christ, both in salvation and in the sacrament, we should share our food and drink with one another in the love feast. In the um, Heidelberg Catechism on Lord's Day 21, uh, at question 55, um, it says this. Let me find it right quick, and I'll read the question and answer. Um, By the way, the Westminster Confession has something very similar to this. What do you understand by the communion of saints? First, that believers, one and all, as members of Christ the Lord, have communion with him and share in all his treasures and gifts. Second, that each member should consider it a duty to use these gifts readily and joyfully for the service and enrichment of other members. Well, it's that second paragraph in the answer to question 55 that I'm saying I think Paul is addressing here. It is based, this interpretation, on seeing that all need Jesus and all need the same amount of Jesus to be saved. Can anyone correctly say, I need less of the grace of God to be saved than you do? No. The ground at the foot of the cross is very level. You can come at it this way. Think of the basis of our fellowship with one another in Christ. What is the basis of our fellowship with one another? Is it Christ alone or Christ plus nothing or something else? It's Christ alone. It's Christ plus nothing. The basis of our coming to Christ and our fellowship in Christ is not Christ plus our money, Christ plus our race, Christ plus our education, Christ plus our gender, Christ plus our ethnicity. We are saved by Jesus Christ alone. Christ plus nothing. No works we bring. And it's a great sin, and I believe that's the sin here in Corinth, It's a great sin for those who profess a Christ plus nothing gospel to practice a Christ plus something else basis for fellowship. That was their problem. They said, well, look, if I'm going to fellowship with you, you've got to have Jesus and you've got to have money. Or I can't fellowship with you. I won't let you into my inner circle. I won't even let you eat my meat. I'll let you go hungry while I get drunk. That's their problem. And that's why God is so agitated, as Paul tells us, by what's going on. What does this say about children and the Lord's Supper? And the age of admission to the Lord's table. 
It seems to me if we do what Paul enjoins here, we need faith in Christ vertically. Yes, I love you, Lord. I want to serve you, Lord. You save me, Lord. But you also need enough maturity to be able to apply the gospel we profess vertically, horizontally. That's what they weren't doing at Corinth. They profess, oh, I love you, Jesus. But they were not applying the gospel. They were not realizing that that they were saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, just like everybody else is saved. And so if I'm right, then it argues for an older age of admission to the Lord's table and not earlier. Second, by way of critical questions coming out of the uh, issues there at Corinth, what is worthy partaking? What is worthy partaking in contrast to partaking in an unworthy manner, which is mentioned in verse 27 and 29? Well, first of all, I want you to point out, and I think this is really missed. I know it's missed in the Presbyterian tradition. I'm not as sure about the Continental Reform tradition uh, that we, we in the Presbyterian tradition have missed the fact that this is an adverb and not an adjective. It's an adverb, not an adjective. It refers more to how we partake than to who or what we are. And I believe that's crucial and often overlooked. Um, in the Presbyterian and Reformed tradition, this can, has been taken uh, to mean things like, well, I make myself worthy by the quality and the quantity of my repentance. It's sometimes called Protestant penance. But surely it's Jesus the one who makes me worthy. And if I say I'm worthy, then I've made myself unworthy by saying that I'm worthy. Or sometimes it's said, well, I make myself worthy by stirring up my faith to a high level. But how high is high enough? to partake worthily. It seems to me that according to 1 Corinthians 11, worthy partaking is, is, seems, is about how I apply the gospel in the way or the manner in which I partake. That I walk in a manner worthy of the gospel, seeing others is more important than myself, Ephesians 4, for Colossians 1, 1 Thessalonians 2. And in the case of the Lord's Supper, it has to do with social, horizontal relationships within the church and especially at the Lord's table. I profane the body and the blood of the Lord when I act as if the gospel does not make a difference in relationships. That's how they profane the gospel. That's how they profane the body and blood of the Lord. When I act as if some members of the church are second rate because they lack money and fine clothing and education and possessions and positions of importance in the world or in the church and lack power. In Corinth, they professed the gospel vertically but denied the gospel horizontally in the way they treated one another at the Lord's table. They were denying the gospel practically in the way they conducted themselves at the love feast and the sacrament that followed. The sacrament was designed to proclaim the Lord's death, but their conduct was as if he had never come. If this is correct, and obviously I believe it is, then a professing Christian could sin against the body and blood of the Lord in context other than the Lord's Supper. For instance, you could give preferential treatment for the rich and where you seat them in church, James chapter 2. 
Or you could avoid eating with Jews and Latinos and blacks or any other group. That's the Galatians problem. Or you could deny entrance to those groups into your church. That's 2 Corinthians 2, verses 11 and following. But we know that people fit in churches who profess Christ. It is not Christ plus. What then is biblical self-examination, verse 28? It seems to me it has to do with the vertical. Do I love Christ? Do I honor Christ? Do I want to serve Christ? Do I have faith in Christ? Am I sorry for my sin against Christ? Am I repentant? But it also has to do with the horizontal. Do I see my brothers and sisters as myself on the same level ground before Christ? Am I willing to live with them in relationship in such a way that reflects the gospel? Am I willing to deny myself for them because Jesus denied himself for me? Am I willing to wait and to share? Am I willing to serve my brothers and sisters in Christ because Jesus has served me? Brothers and sisters, I believe that what went wrong at Corinth was in their manner of partaking They were denying the gospel that the sacrament should have shown forth and which they professed. It was a great contradiction. What they did in their conduct denied what they said with their mouths. Their problem was their practice, not their profession. It was their conduct, not their creed. They were profaning the body and blood of the Lord. They failed to discern the body, the church, for what it is. They failed to examine themselves in regard to their fellowship and their love for one another. And therefore, many of them were partaking unworthily. Said said another way, they professed faith in the gospel, but they were not properly working the gospel through in application. Their relationships were not being affected by the gospel they professed. They had divisions and factions, verses 18 and 19. They despised one another in the way they took the supper. Let us understand and believe the gospel. Let us trust the one who never contradicted himself, whose message and methods were always in sync, who died for our contradictions. And then let us work it through in our relationships. God's glory on earth depends on this. And if I read this correctly, our lives depend on it, too. Let us pray. Father, forgive us our contradictions, not just the one like we've been looking at here in 1 Corinthians 11, but the one we prayed about earlier when we confessed our sin, that we see the specks in others' eyes easier than we see the planks or logs in our own. Lord, help us to remember the gospel, the gospel we profess to you vertically. Help us to apply it horizontally in the way we love one another. Surely, Lord, we know it takes as much of your grace to save us as anybody, and the gap between us and you is infinitely greater than the gap between us and any other member of any other church on the face of the earth. Help us to love as you loved and help our profession and our practice, our creed and our conduct to be in sync. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.